if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is going to be our primary text this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21 in particular. So for those who have uh, grown up in the Restoration Movement churches, churches of Christ and Christian churches, you may be familiar with the five-finger exercise. How many people are familiar with the five-finger exercise? If you went to Bible college, you're really familiar with the five-finger exercise. And so uh, here's what the five-finger exercise is. It's a, it's a way of, like, one, sharing your faith with others and also understanding how you give your life to Christ. And so, you know, kind of going through those five fingers, uh, the first finger would be belief. So you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, uh, that he died for your sins. You believe that you are a sinner in need of his forgiveness. And so that's that first finger. So it's belief. Uh, the second finger would be repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward God. Uh, so returning away from sin and turning toward God. This is not a one-time event, by the way. This is something that a follower of Christ does all throughout their life. Uh, the third finger would be confession, that you confess Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. And now we live in a society in a time where we want to confess Jesus Christ to be our Savior. It's interesting, right, that as I dig through God's Word, there is nowhere in God's Word that it tells us to confess Jesus Christ to be our personal Savior. That's just not there. But the idea of confessing Jesus Christ to be Lord. A Lord is someone you submit to. They have authority in your life. And so that would be uh, the third finger in that five-finger exercise. And the fourth finger would be uh, baptism that you submit to Christian baptism. It's at baptism that we get what Jack Cottrell would have called the double cure. We get the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. Interestingly enough, our whole goal for the weekend in the Word is that we come together and we have an understanding of how to share our faith with the others and, and kind of focusing in on these ideas. But the fifth finger, the fifth finger is live the Christian life. And so that's what I want to focus on today. What does that look like? I mean, what does the idea of living the Christian life look like, right? And is, is the idea of the Christian life uh, that we have this sinless perfection? Is the idea of the Christian life that, that we have this license to sin? Because the truth of the matter is, is as you think about the Christian life, depending upon your view of God and, and his word, that one of those two things are, are most likely the case. So our manner of living the Christian life often becomes the standard by which we seek to hold others to. And the Christian life, as we understand, is one that no matter which side of that, right, is it a license to sin or is it this sinless perfection, no matter which side of that we focus on, we have this stuff that we battle, this idea, the flesh that we live in. A few years ago, as a matter of fact, I looked through my journals and that's what these are. These are my Bible reading journals. And I just want to tell you, if you pick these up and read them, you'll be bored to death. There's nothing exciting in these Bible reading journals. It's just every morning I wake up and I read God's word. I decided in 2015 that I was going to spend every year, I was going to read God's word from, from the front to back. And so just that discipline started. And, and, and how I've done that is this. I read three chapters in the Old Testament each morning. Uh, and so then I read um, two chapters in the New Testament. Doing that, I, I can read God's Word. I can read the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice each year. So that's my goal. And so then I, I sit down and I, I write out different thoughts like, okay, in Moses' life, this is what I focus in on today. And there's usually a big thought that I want to uh, think through. And sometimes if you ask me at the end of the day, hey, what was your big thought in Bible reading today? I would be able to tell you. Other times I got so busy that I didn't remember until I opened my journal back up. 
But it was my journey through Philippians about four or five years ago, somewhere along that time frame, uh, that I came across the third chapter of Philippians. And in coming across the third chapter of Philippians, there are some verses in there that have impacted my life. As a matter of fact, if you were to pick up one of these journals and, and, and open them up, you would see that as I finish each day, each day of my reading, I write these verses out. And the verses are this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that, those verses right there, have become to me the idea of what it means, right, to live the Christian life. The idea of what it means that, that we as followers of Christ, the, the task that we have as followers of Christ is actually one of chasing holiness, right? And, and so it's that Christian life, living the Christian life. What is it? What's it look like? Now, if you hear me talk about the five-finger exercise, and most of the time I'll end a message with the, the invitation to, to believe, to repent, to confess, to be baptized, and, and then I'll follow it with chase holiness, chasing holiness. That, that's what God has, has called for each of us to do. And, and before we dig into our passage of Scripture this morning, I want to remind you of what, what Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 when he said, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. And as God is completing his work in us, we chase holiness. So what does it mean? What does holiness mean? Right? If you're doing the Core 52 reading, you know, you, we just went through the chapter on holiness and, and we learned that holiness is being set apart for the use of God. But there's another idea about holiness that I think we understand the practical implications of holiness. It's becoming like Christ in word and in deed. And I believe in our passage of scripture that we focus in on this morning, I believe that we can learn from Paul and follow his example and that as we are chasing holiness, our run, that run will look a few certain ways. The first thing we'll see is that, that we'll run with a holy dissatisfaction. We'll run with a holy dissatisfaction. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 declares, not that I have already grasped it all, or have already become perfect, but I press on, if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. What is the all that Paul is referring to? Uh, the all is really found in those verses, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that I may know Christ, right? To know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Here the apostle Paul is declaring for the hearers in Philippi and the readers today that he's not grasped that, that he's not reached his goal. Please understand that this holy dissatisfaction that Paul has here, it's not this self-debasing attitude that says, I'm no good. It's a realization from Paul how far he has come, but how much further he still has to go in his Christian walk, which is amazing for me to realize, right? Because he wrote these words nearly three decades after meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. For Paul, there was still more to know. There was still growth that needed to take place in his own Christian walk. He said, I've not grasped it all. I don't know him, the manner in which I need to know him. And so he kept pressing forward. I'm reminded uh, after 
You guys gave me the opportunity to become a preacher, and I left my job at Simmons Company. I, I remember one of the first COPA meetings that I went to. COPA is the Central Ohio Preachers Association. Uh, it's the group that puts on the men and boys bean dinner every year that's coming up. Uh, and so I went to that first meeting, and, and usually at those meetings, they have different topics that impact Christian leaders. And, and so one particular meeting, they had somebody come in to talk about preaching. Right, how to better preach a sermon. And man, here I am, brand new on preaching, right? And I remember that day, right, that Ray Lynn, Ray Lynn had spent over 30 years in ministry at the Heath Church of Christ. He had recently retired. So here he is coming to this meeting. I don't remember who was speaking that day, talking about preaching, but the fact is, is that person that was speaking that day had probably not spent 40 plus years preaching God's word, had probably not been retired. I'm sure they weren't retired. But Ray comes into that meeting and he sits down front and center. And as soon as the speaker starts to talk, Ray takes out his pen and his notepad and he listens intently, writing down everything this guy had to say about preaching better sermons. See, in my thinking, I'm like, man, if there was somebody who could say, listen, I know all there is to know about preaching God's word and doing it. I'm retired now. There's no sense in me taking the time to do this. But no, that morning, Ray thought, I have not arrived. I'm still not there. There's still more for me to know. There's still more ways for me to grow. Hey, see, the truth is in the Christian life, we are, never, we are never going to get to the point where we have arrived. We should never be satisfied like Paul. Paul pointing back like to his heritage and his, his accomplishments, right? I'm not there. And if anybody could have done that, it could have been Paul. Remember, he wrote these words about meeting Christ. But when he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. If, if someone could have rested in their position and in their training, it, it would have been Paul. Friends, what about us today? Do we have this holy dissatisfaction about knowing Christ? Or are we comfortable. I think of Nelson when I started here and Sunday nights I'd ask questions and he'd always have the, the answer prayer and Bible study. But then the other thing he would say about us as a body of believers often, if you guys were there, you'll remember. Ernie, you remember him saying our problem is we're fat, dumb, and happy. That was Nelson's way of talking about the Christian walk and where we're at. Are we still growing in grace? Are we allowing God's word to be the cutting instrument of our souls? Are we being transformed into the image of Christ? This is the chase of holiness. Our problem is, and I'm just as guilty, please understand. Our problem is, is that instead of comparing ourselves to Christ and seeking to become like him, we often compare ourselves to each other. You've heard the silly joke, right, about the two guys that were being chased by the bear. The one guy decides to change his shoes. The other guy gets up and starts running and says, what are you doing? He's like, listen, man, I, I, I don't need to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you. And the fact is, is that oftentimes we live our Christian life like that. As long as we're doing just a little bit more than so-and-so, as long as we're refraining from more sin than so-and-so, our chase for holiness has little to do with seeking to know Christ, and it gets caught up with trying to be better than so-and-so. What Paul declares here is this. Listen, my standard of holiness is Christ alone. I've not yet attained that. 
I've not reached the goal. So I press on. This is the idea of a runner running a race. And this is what we should picture, right? This picture that Paul's wanting to paint here is the picture of a runner with their eyes on nothing but the finish line, right? And I'm running in such a way that when they get to the finish line, they collapse at the end, pressing forward to that goal. So, and what's that goal? Friends, the goal is not heaven. Because heaven would not be heaven without the presence of Christ. The goal is Christ and to see him and to know him, knowing that we're becoming like him. The key to running with the holy dissatisfaction is found in allowing God's spirit to work in our souls, to work in our souls and to investigate us. I know, I know I share this passage a lot, but it's true every time. Do we have that same posture as King David when he said, search me, O God, know my heart, put me to the test. Know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way, in the everlasting way. So often, instead of allowing the Spirit to search our souls, we do our best to self-reflect. We make ourselves better than what we are, especially when we compare ourselves to others. We make ourselves worse than what we are sometimes as well. And we don't allow God to work in us, right? After all, how could he forgive such a pathetic sinner? But when we allow God to search us, he puts in us a holy dissatisfaction. And this is what I mean by that, that we realize we've not yet attained what he desires for us to be, but we keep pressing on. We keep chasing after that holiness that he's called us to. We're chasing more and more of him, more of his spirit's work in our lives, more of living out that purpose for which he has taken hold of us. So friends, how's your chase? Are you running it with a holy dissatisfaction? Second thing, in addition to that, we run with this holy, a holy determination. Look at verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Just so that the hearer of this letter was fully aware, Paul declares, listen, I'm not there. Friends, I don't want you to mistake. I haven't reached the goal. I'm continuing on this path. And he has an interesting play of words here, right? I find it really extremely interesting. Because when you read it, like, well, the one thing I do, and then he goes on to mention two things, right? So, but before you can do the one thing, you've got to do the other thing. And the other thing was this. Paul says, listen, this is what I do. I forget what is behind. I forget what is behind. I, I thought about titling this message, Forgetting and Knowing. Kind of a play on words there, forgetting and knowing, forgetting what is behind. And there's a couple of things that we need to forget as followers of Christ, right? There are many who who look at this and believe that Paul's focus here was all on the perceived positives. You remember, right? He says, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, righteousness according to the law. I was blameless. And, And some people think that that was Paul's focus alone, but I think he also had the focus on his sin. Because how could Paul not look back and remember the stoning death of Stephen? How could Paul not look back and remember his failure in Christ, apart from Christ? How could he have not remembered throwing others into jail? So those thoughts of his sin, they had to weigh heavy on his soul. And I really believe that these could have been his thoughts when he wrote these words. In Romans, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of sin of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand... 
I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul, he knew the answer, right? The answer who could rescue him was Christ. He met him on the road to Damascus. He was forgiven. He was sealed. He was set free to preach Christ. And so when those thoughts of sin crept back into his mind, and I'm sure they did, I'm sure they did. When they crept back into his mind, just like the thoughts of his accomplishments, you know what he did? Hey, those things are behind me. I can't dwell on those things any longer. I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on to take hold of of that which I've been taken hold of. And perhaps the best verse in all the Bible, that's when Paul would write, therefore there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, it's often thoughts of the past that keep the body of Christ from moving forward and the individual follower of Christ from moving forward. I, I spent some time this morning looking at that picture when I got in, the picture on the wall. By the way, it's a little crooked and it's bothering me right now. So look at it. So, so Tom, could you straighten that up back there? <laughs> I spent some time looking at that picture. For the body of Christ, there is often the thoughts of the glory years. Right? And you look at that picture and it's filled with families and young kids. It's filled with great memories. And it's filled with this realization we're not there any longer. We're not there. We don't have 20 kids standing in front. It's not filled up. And we think, man, if we could just go back to the glory years when we were flourishing, we would sing hymns, the building would be full. If we could only return to the way we did things during those years, we would do well and be a a strong and healthy church. And that's oftentimes the way we focus. And and listen, everybody is guilty of it. All of us are guilty of that. But the truth is, is we often forget and fail to remember is that the church was perfectly designed to reach the culture in which it was placed at that time. So this church was designed to reach that culture. And this church went about doing that. We went about doing the things that God called us to do. And we were perfectly matched up with the culture that needed the message of the gospel then. But we can't fall back into the trap and just think if we just go back to those days, God will bless us. No. Oh. He's called us today. He's called us today to build a bigger bridge to the culture because the bridge between the culture and the church then was much shorter. So it was a lot easier to have full buildings. Now that bridge is much longer. And most oftentimes we as a church, we just get fat, dumb, and happy and we stop building the bridge to the culture. We can't go back to the glory days and think that God's going to just bless if we just do things the way we did them then we got to forget what's behind, and we got to seek to build a new bridge to the culture the Lord has left the Milford Church of Christ to reach today. Then, then, then maybe we'll see people part, breaking the waters of baptism behind us. And maybe we'll hear more children crying out loud while the preacher's preaching. It's not the good old days. We're here now. Forget what's behind Press on towards what is ahead. And also, for the individual follower of Christ, there are some who look at their own past and they glory in it, right? Man, I was, look at me like the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so, right? And, uh, but, but that's not good enough. But most of the time, most of the time, we're like the tax collector. Lord, how can you forgive me for everything that I've done? How can you use me when I've done A, B, C, and D? So like Paul, 
We need to forget what's behind and press on toward what is ahead. Because when we look behind us, when we look behind, it takes us off track. I, I, I think through CJ. When we moved over to Johnstown, CJ had a chance to play with a, a group of kids on a football team that they only lost one game between their fifth grade year and their ninth grade, ninth grade year. And after that, they all joined JV and varsity over there. And so, but between their fifth grade year, this group of boys only lost one game. And that one game they lost was to their arch rival, Northridge. So that's who it was to. And you know what happened in that game? We lost 8-6. to six. I was one of the coaches on that team. We lost 8-6, to six and, and they got a two-point conversion, and we missed a two-point conversion. But it was late in that game that one of our better athletes, this kid was fast, one of the most athletic kids on the team, he picked up a fumble. It was about at the 50-yard line. And that fumble, he picked it up, and he was able to scoop. It was a, what we call a scoop and score. Just pick it up, pick it up, buddy, and run. And so he picked it up, and he was running, and he was well out ahead of everybody, but he did something a little goofy. You know what he did? He turned around to look and see who was behind him. And as he turned around to look and see who was behind him, he lost his footing, and then he was able to be tackled. I thought, no big deal, right? We'll score on the next play. No, we fumbled on the next play. We lost the game 8-6 to six because we're looking behind Friends, the Christian walk is like that. And as a body of believers, we've got to forget what's behind us. As individuals, we've got to forget what's behind us. And we've got to press on. We've got to press on. We've got to get our eyes on the goal. Remember, the goal's not heaven. If the goal's heaven, we're going to be extremely bored, right? But if the goal is to know Christ and to make him known, if the goal is to be in his presence, there's nothing more important than that for us. So we forget and we press on. We keep moving. So, Paul declares, I will not be sidetracked. I'll keep my eye on the prize, the prize of being resurrected with Jesus Christ. Friends, how's your chase? Are you forgetting what's behind? Are you pressing forward to what lies ahead? In addition, we also we run with a holy discipline. Look at verses, we're going to look at verses 15 through 19 next. Therefore, all who are mature, let's have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal to you as well. However, let's keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The wording here is challenging. He says, if you're mature in Christ, this will be your attitude. And listen, just so we're clear, he's saying it in a nice way. But if this isn't your attitude, you're not mature. That's really what he said. He said it a lot nicer than what the preacher just said. It. Like, if you're maturing, this will be your goal. You'll be chasing after Christ. He'll be the single focus of your life. You'll want to know him. You'll want to make him known. You'll want to live in the power of his resurrection. You'll be willing to share in his sufferings, right? You understand that you need him to raise you up on the last day. This is your goal. You're living toward that. If you're not, maybe you're not maturing in Christ. Maybe we need to go back to that Psalm 139. Search me, God. Point it out to me. Let me see those ways in which I'm not becoming more and more like you. So that attitude was to know him. So growing up, there were pencil marks on the door frame of our, uh, the door frame heading into our dining room. Anybody else have those? Those pencil marks, right? Those, so, and, and usually they were done at different times. It was birthdays, maybe the six-month mark away from your birthday. But it was interesting. You know, the whole time I was in that house, I'd look over. Probably out of a bit of laziness, there were these, 
marks that were still there of growing up. Uh, and so, uh, and just be able to look back at those markers of our growth in life. I wonder at times, do we as followers have those growth markers that we investigate? We should. We should. We should be able to point back and say, this was the growth that, that the Lord had brought me to. They, those who are mature in their faith chase after holiness and will be able to have those markers in their lives. How do we come to know Christ? How do we come to know him? Not just in the, in the salvation aspect of that. Far too, many, far too often we're just satisfied with getting in. Getting in, right? Just want to get in. Get in. It makes me think of April and I, we used to go to Cedar Point every year for a date day. And uh, so Cedar Point's a great place to go if you love roller coasters. I'm well past that time frame of my life. So I don't want to ride a roller coaster anymore. But man, just imagine walking into Cedar Point, right? And you get in the gate and then you walk in and you just stop right there. I'm in. I'm here. All right, there's no going and riding the Magnum, the Top Thrill Dragster. There's no going and riding uh, all of those great roller coasters. I'm just in. Not really experiencing anything, but I'm here. Far too often, that's where we satisfied the Christian walk. So we need to saturate ourselves in God's word. We need to submit ourselves to the purpose which he has given us. And then we'll take hold of that which he has taken hold of. That's really what we need, is we need a new renewal and a new determination to live by spiritual disciplines that we ignore so much today in the church. How often in the church do you hear us talking about scripture reading and prayer and meditation and fasting and service and solitude? We've stopped talking about those things because what we've done, done is we've dumbed down Christianity to the lowest common denominator and we're experiencing the, the outcome of that. There are very few growth markers in any body of Christ because of that. What we need is a newfound love for those. In the celebration of discipline, Richard Foster wanted to make sure that we understood this. He wrote, God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us, so that he can make us like Christ. He would go on to write, we must always remember that the path does not produce the change. It only places us where the change can occur. And this is the path of discipline grace if knowing Christ is the chase of your life, do you have the spiritual markers of spending time in this book? Do you have the spiritual markers of serving? Do you have the spiritual growth markers of prayer and solitude and submission to God and his will? Paul gives the hearer, the reader of this great letter, another marker to check. Look at verse 17, beginning there. Brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you as I weep that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, and who have their minds on earthly things. I love the fact that Paul, like he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, says the same thing. It's basic, right? Follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. You know, I think about that, right, in our own walk with Christ. How many, how many of us, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm right here with you, guys. I'm not standing, I mean, I am standing up because that's the way we design churches. But please understand, I am not that comfortable most of the time at looking at people and saying, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. 
Maybe it's a false humility that causes me to do that. But the truth is, is I understand the struggles in life. Paul, right here, was able to write to this church and he's able to challenge us. And he's saying very simply, listen, follow me. Because I'm following him. Become like me because I'm becoming like him. I mean, that's a marker. That's a growth marker that we are to have as followers of Christ. We've already seen Paul in this book deal with the Judaizers, right? Those who wanted the, he called them the mutilators of the flesh. Here, Paul gives us a small glimpse of a second group of people that would challenge him over and over, and they're known as the Gnostics. And, and the Gnostics began with a simple principle. Spirit is good, matter is bad. Right? You think, well, that sounds pretty good, right? Spirit's good, matter is bad. But here's what they did with that. Since spirit is good and matter is bad, we have to come to an understanding, according to the Gnostics, that we all have this flesh and there's, it's bad, right? And because it's bad, we might as well go ahead and live life out and enjoy it to its fullest. After all, God is a good God. He'll forgive us. He gives us grace. And, and that's the idea that he was working against. Imagine the impact this would have on the body of Christ. Actually, we don't have to imagine that. We, we, all we have to do is look around. Look around the church today and see the things that we put up with. Look around the church today and understand that we've stopped disciplining members who call themselves members of the body of Christ. Why? Because we're afraid of losing them, right? Well, the question we need to start asking is, do we even have them? Do we even have them? Right? Uh, the sanctity of life is ignored. The institution of marriage is mocked and questioned. God's word, God's judgment, God's goodness are openly debated within the body of Christ, much like the serpent did with Eve in the garden. What we have to do is get back to the principle and the understanding that we need to submit to God's word, the discipline of allowing his word to shape our lives. And did you notice in there too the way Paul responded to those who didn't? I love what he says there in verse 18. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you as I weep that are enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about people in the church. And did you see how you responded and thought about them? There was weeping. There was weeping for them. We often speak with eager expectation about people who are far from Christ or even people in the church that believe differently than we do, and we picture them being punished and destroyed in the fires of hell. That's not the spiritual posture that we should take. We must stop hoping for the physical destruction of the world and weep for the state of the world. We must stop declaring that those who don't teach like us or believe like us are completely wrong and weep for those who misunderstand because of what's being taught and allow God to do his work. Paul said their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, and their minds are on earthly things. He doesn't sugarcoat it, right? It's going to happen, but we don't have to enjoy it in the process. We just got to stay focused. Keep our eyes on Christ. Live with this holy discipline, not, only, not allowing ourselves to be sidetracked. Not allowing that to take place. A discipline to be in his word. A discipline to walk in his ways. A discipline to become more and more like him. It reminds me of what Paul would write to the church in Corinth. He said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things so, that, so they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
Therefore, I run in such a way as to not run aimlessly. I box in such a way as to avoid hitting the air. But I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Friends, do you have a holy discipline? How's your chase? Final thought. We run toward a holy destination. Look at verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has given, that, that has even to subject all things to himself. That he has even to subject all things to himself. See, remember, Paul's original recipients of this letter were citizens of Rome. Uh, they lived in the city of Philippi. Uh, most of them were retired soldiers. And if they would have had Memorial Day and, and, and uh, the 4th of July like we do, these would have been the most celebrated holidays there. They trusted in their Roman citizenship to provide peace, to provide comfort, to provide protection. And as great as it was to be a Roman citizen, Paul wanted to remind them that your citizenship is not here. It's not here. It's not here. And, and, and we're merely traveling through this life with our eyes on the ultimate prize. And remember, please understand, the ultimate prize is not sitting on some cloud, playing some harp. It's being in the presence of Christ. Isn't it awesome to go home a lot of times? You spend a day at work. You spend a day away from the house. All, all of life is falling apart. But then as soon as you go home, you're surrounded by people who love you, care about you, want what's best for you. Multiply that by a gazillion, if that's even a number. That's that holy destination. That's that holy destination. This is not our home. Every time we say goodbye to someone we love on this side of heaven, we're reminded this is not our home. Every time we battle the temptations of the flesh and deal with regret of giving in, we're reminded that this is not our home. Every time we read a headline of some heartbreaking occurrence in the sin-infested world, we're reminded that this is not our home. And what we're also reminded of is the fact of this, is that every person we encounter deals with the same sin-infested flesh that we do. And we can't put our hope in no one other than Christ. So we trust him. We run toward that holy destination and we run with a holy dissatisfaction knowing that on this side of heaven we have not yet reached our goal. We run with a holy determination knowing that our eyes need to stay on Christ. Only he, through the power of God's spirit at work in our lives, can transform us into his image. We run with a holy discipline that's fueled by knowing God's word and submitting to his will in our lives. And God's will is to become like who? Like Jesus. Like Jesus. That's the chase of holiness. This week in my reading, I found myself in the Gospel of Luke. It's, I was reminded again of that verse, one of the verses that I was challenged to memorize early on when I started attending Summit Theological Seminary. And it's simply this, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone when he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. That, that's the chase. That's the chase for every single one of us. 
We have to understand that while we're carrying around this flesh, we will not, we will not yet become fully like him, but it doesn't stop us from chasing. He'll transform our, these lowly bodies into his glorious one. Friends, how's your chase? How's your chase? Are you chasing holiness? Or are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with where you're at? Once again, those verses. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And there's the chase. How's yours? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we've had to spend some time in it. I pray, Lord, that your spirit has done work that study has not done. I pray, God, that you've searched our hearts and our minds and know where we're at and are putting us in a position to, to surrender and to indeed have that chase of holiness apparent in our lives. Lord, we need you. We need your son. We need to become more and more like him. And that comes with an understanding that we're not yet there, that we need you, that we surrender to you, that we discipline ourselves, that we trust in your word, that we're constantly turning back toward you in repentance and renewal and understanding, God, that you will raise us up on the last day. But until then, place within us a holy dissatisfaction. Place within us a hunger to become and know more and more about Christ and to become like him. God, do what only you can do through the power of your spirit in our lives. We pray these things in your son's most holy name. Amen. If you've not yet given your life to Christ, please understand that everything I've just talked about, and here's a danger of a message like this. A danger of a message like this is just try hard, work hard, do more. And that's not the case. Because once we understand that we're not yet like Christ and we know we need more of him in our lives, we understand that it's just this constant submission to him as the Lord of your life. If you've not yet made that determination that he is the Lord of your life, what's keeping you from doing so today? Remember, if you believe that you're a sinner and that he died in your place, you repent of your sins and you confess him to be the Lord of your life. If you submit to Christian baptism, he'll fill you with his Holy Spirit and he'll help you on that chase. But it starts by surrendering to him as Lord. If you've not yet done that, what's keeping you from doing so today?